What is universal design for learning? Is it only about students with disabilities? How can it be used to engage your learners? These are some of the questions we will address in this episode of Learner Engagement Activated, the podcast that helps you take teaching and learning to the next level with the latest in research and applications on learning engagement for students at all ages, levels, and environments. This podcast hosts leaders in the field to bring you advice for how to increase learner engagement to improve student outcomes. I'm your host, Ian Fency, and in this episode, I speak with Lillian Nave at Appalachian State University about how UDL can be helpful to all educators and how to get started. Ready, set, activate. Lillian Nave is a senior lecturer in first year seminar and the Universal Design for Learning coordinator for the Center for Academic Excellence at Appalachian State University. She also hosts the Think UDL podcast, where she interviews UDL advocates and implementers from all over the world who are making a difference in post-secondary contexts. Lillian also presents on UDL practices at conferences worldwide, bringing her message about the value of diversity in the classroom to educators everywhere. So let's begin with a quick overview of universal design for learning for those who may not be familiar with this approach. Can you define UDL in layman's terms? Um, Yes, I'm going to um, say that it is really more of a lens or a mindset. I'm going to start out with that because um, that is the overarching idea is UDL Um, is a lens through which you design a teaching and learning experience um, in which you believe and recognize and value that all of the learners in your setting, wherever it is, if it's online, in person, if it's in a job, if it's in higher ed, wherever it is, um, that all of your learners are different and that you value those differences. And those differences may be in um, their um, abilities. Um, It may be in um, things that we might call um, learning uh, disabilities. It might be in accessibility. Um, It might be that you have um, students who have English as a second language or who work a full-time job or um, who come from various parts of the world or who come from different cultural backgrounds, ethnic backgrounds. Um, And so that you recognize that you will have a set of learners that differ from each other and you want to be able to reach uh, all of those learners and you value those uh, differences. So you want to actually bring those in and um, and say that's a great thing to have. So um, universal design for learning, I think, starts from that place, saying differences abound in whatever mm-hmm. situation, wherever you are, and that's a really great thing. Let's leverage those things so that we can all learn better um, and not just focus on one particular kind of learner, uh, one particular uh, usually mythological learner that we might average the average uh, that we might think is out there but say I don't even know how many differences there are but how can I design a place a a learning space whether it's online or or in person um, that values and brings in all of those differences uh, and says it's okay. And not just says it's okay, but says, I need those. We need Mm -hmm. those to make a better learning experience. 
Um, so that's kind of the, the big overview. Um, it is not, uh, it's not a checklist. Um, it is not um, a bunch of things you can uh, check off on your here, I've done UDL because I've done this. Yeah. But there are some there's some guiding principles um, about kind of ways to think about it. That includes engagement and providing lots of ways to engage different learners, um, providing multiple means of representation. So how are those learners going to get the information they need? Are they going to read it? Are they going to listen to it? Are they going to find it on a website? Are they going to watch a movie, a documentary? Um, how, how are you going to present that information knowing that um, somebody who uh, has an auditory processing disorder might learn differently than somebody who doesn't. But let's multiply that by a thousand, right? All the differences that we have in our learners. And then finally, um, multiple ways to uh, assess or find out, are those students getting what you want them to get or, or learning what you need them to learn or what they need to learn? And that would be providing multiple means of action and expression. So things that we might call in higher ed assessment, but demonstrating that they know it. So options, options, options. That's really yeah. what UDL is. Okay. Is that um, anything like learning styles? No. <laughs> oh, that's a fun myth. Okay. To not, uh, uh, not um, get out there. That uh, We do need to say that learning styles is not a thing. Um, and UDL is not about learning styles. Um, certainly, you can provide multiple options for how students get their information. So for instance, I make sure that um, all of the materials I um, give to students are accessible. So that if, let's say, a student has um, needs a screen reader um, in order to get the information that I have provided a PDF or um, an audio track or something, or usually both, uh, making sure that those um, th that the information is accessible. But it's not because I'm trying to get an auditory learner and a kinesthetic learner. Yeah. Those, yeah. Yeah. So some people do get that confused. I hear it a lot. Yes. But learning styles is a myth that has been debunked. Yes, and I am always. Um, I just had to throw that in there because I'm always trying trying to get people to away oh, yeah. from what seems logical about learning styles, you yeah. know, that people have preferences. Sure. But mm -hmm. just because you learn in that preference doesn't mean you're mm -hmm. gonna learn better. It's it's really right. if you learn in multiple ways and mm -hmm. you know you you learn in the way that is lends itself best to that content. Right. Uh, that's really what matters more than a learning style. And the context can change, you know, so I never listened to anything for like when I was going through school, it was a lot of reading and writing. Mm -hmm. That's about all it was. Now I prefer to have a podcast, you know, or listen to something or do something else, vacuum, drive in a car or something like that. And so it can be situational, can be contextual. And so knowing that our students also might have children to take care of at home, might have a job, might have a million other things that may not have anything to do with their identity or who they are, but might be situational, um, just providing options so that there's not a barrier that we're throwing out there um, that makes it harder for our students to get at that information. So I might, you know, be a uh, in the auditory mood, like I want to listen uh, mm -hmm. because I, I can um, kind of do go for a walk and, and listen at the same time. But 
um, it is not the same as that learning styles. And so every time I use things that kind of cross over that language for learning styles, I want to make sure we're saying, no, not the same yep. thing, but we are <laughs> providing options because we know options are very important. Yeah. Yeah. So then what, what led you to universal design? I mean, if you didn't have anything like this when you were growing up. No, I didn't. Um, three things really. Um, one is, uh, um, there's like a 20 year itch that moved in to that because I have three children. So that was one thing. I started to recognize that there are very different ways of being human, uh, different ways of learning, um, different ways that I saw my children succeed. And now my children are 20, 18 and 15. Um, and so I've been able to see them go through the educational system and into college and realizing that um, when one of my children couldn't read unless uh, they were kind of upside down on the couch wiggling, <laughs> and that was very different than another child who would like yep. a quiet space, to, you know, nobody, uh, nobody around, um, I started to see, wow, people dif learn differently than I ever did. So knowing that difference, and then also loving all three of my children, you know, <laughs> there wasn't one that, um, I was like, oh, that's the right way to do things. Yeah. Just being able to appreciate all yeah. of them. Um, and then the second part is, is being a teacher. So being an instructor at the college level since I started teaching in 1996, um, and even as a TA before that. So, and in various different areas. So at a um, private elite school, um, at a state university uh, in New York, at uh, a kind of a, a, another private Catholic university, and then at, um, at Appalachian State, which is a large public, uh, largest place I've been. And seeing that there was such a wide variety of students, brilliant students in ways that I didn't know one could be brilliant. Right. Mm -hmm. I, I kind of had a small view of the way I had been through school and, and what was valued. Um, and and you could see some biases um, about, you know, the written word being the most important when I could see some students who could move um, the ideas of the class through uh, with with ways I never would have thought of. And one example is I had a student in a women artists course because I taught art history for a long time. Um, and she was also a modern dance major. And in her presentation about um, uh, women artists in the 60s, she used some elements of modern dance and I'm not a dancer. And um, that was just something really foreign to me. And I was teary. I was like, this is so powerful and passionate. I never would have assigned that, you yeah, know? Yep. And so that was something also that led me to it. And then most recently um, it's through College Star, uh, Star Sense for Supporting Transition Access and Retention. Um, and it was a grant that I got to work with on the campus of Appalachian State. I worked with several other uh, campuses in North Carolina um, for us to introduce universal design for learning to our faculty and also provide supports specifically for executive functions for our students. So it had a two-pronged approach, one on the faculty side, which is what I got to be a part of, and one on the student side, which included mentoring and tutoring um, and different ways uh, to, to help 
our students uh, through college. So uh, that was like the, the three things that brought me to it thinking, wow, I didn't know there was a name for this. Yeah. And now I know there's a name. And so I've been proselytizing um, ever since. Yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> amazing that this gave you an opportunity to discover your students passions and talents oh, yeah. you know oh, yeah. that a lot of times students like that don't get to shine in a classroom right. and imagine if we let every student share something you know yeah. what we would learn from them right and it's so much more fun too yeah. right it's so much more fun i i now um have um given as final assignments documentary films like short films where they are um trying to discover nazi looted art like and what should be done about it um mm -hmm and um, peer review workshops that I never did or was a part of and thought that was maybe even cheating. It's not, it's really helpful, but yeah. just the, the way that I had kind of gone through the system was very individualistic um, mm -hmm. and not as collectivist and um, didn't realize how much we could learn from each other. It was yeah. just very eye-opening. Um, and so I'm happy to, to share those things that, that I've learned and just has made my teaching life so much brighter, um, more interesting and engaging for me. Yeah. And you share a lot of this on your podcast. You have the Think UDL podcast, yep. um, which I'm a big fan of, and I'll link to the um, podcast in the episode description so other people can check it out too. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what you talk about on that show? Yes, absolutely. Well, every episode is UDL um, themed, but I get to talk to people all over the world, really, um, who include, um, who are doing UDL interventions um, in their work um, and in their practice. And those include higher education professionals, instructors, professors, et cetera, uh, but also workforce development, um, PR, public relations people I've had before, um, hmm. uh, folks who work with our students, like tutoring centers and things like that, um, people who are out in the real world using universal design for learning in, in other educational environments. Um, and I just get to talk to people about um, neurodiversity, how people are different, how mm -hmm. neurodiversity is a strength and how we can um, leverage that for better, um, more nuanced, richer learning environments. Um, so I get to um, interview people from um, really uh, everywhere. I mean, I've talked to folks on most continents <laughs> and then we have oh, listeners yeah. on, on all but Antarctica and maybe I can get <laughs> The outpost someone to up there to, to listen to it. Yeah, I know. Oh, I need to interview somebody, some penguin doctor yeah. or something. <laughs> um, but um, I, the idea was uh, to raise the chatter about universal design for learning in higher ed settings. And there are a couple podcasts um, that um, seem to focus more on K-12. And mm -hmm. so mine has that specific um, interest in higher education and beyond. So kind of getting um, students future ready and institutions, governments sometimes um, about how to include universal design for learning um, in, we, I've seen it in Ghana and UDL for Africa. Um, just recently, the episode that's just come out recently was with uh, Mark Glenn in uh, Ireland, which has a really big um, universal design for learning um, implementation plan for the for the whole country oh, wow. so yeah yeah so cool. i get to learn wow they're really doing it right and yeah what yeah do? how can we learn from each cool. other 
Yeah, and in uh, one thing that I that I often notice in K through twelve in particular is that people have this perception that UDL is about accessibility mm-hmm. for students with disability. So if I don't believe that. I believe that UDL is for everyone. So how does UDL benefit students that don't have disabilities? Uh, yeah, great question. That It gets confused as well. Um, I hear that in uh, higher ed. And, uh, you know, universal design for learning started out a long time ago with that accessibility piece. Um, but it has... Um, morphed and changed and expanded um, into um, a real large umbrella um, that includes accessibility. That is certainly a a mainstay of Mm -hmm. what universal design for learning does. Um, But um, it also helps in every, I think, every educational situation. So, um, you know, I mentioned earlier that there's the idea of the situational change, like maybe I want to listen to a podcast now, and that can happen for accessibility as well, you know, Um, so we might, uh, might have somebody who has an accessibility need because they are deaf or hard of hearing, and so they might need subtitles, but we also might have situational accessibility needs, and we've all uh, experienced that with COVID, Right. Mm-hmm. How, how do we access the university if we're not allowed on campus? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> you know, how, how do we get into that classroom if if, um, you know, people aren't allowed or you've got to wear masks or you've got to um, stay six feet apart? Uh, how do we make that education accessible or um, something that happens on our snowy campus uh, right after Thanksgiving and Christmas, especially a lot of people on scooters because they've broken their leg skiing or their arm or something. Oh. <laughs> Right. So how do they if they can't make it physically to class, how do we um, zoom them in or, you know, things like that. So there are situational accessibilities, um, things like if you're sick, right, we don't want you to come to class anymore. It used to be, oh, tough it out. Yes. You know, (laughs) you've got to be there. Um, And now we realize that's a bad idea. Um, So it so just in that example, universal design for learning says hey, we've got a plan in place so that the one person who is uh, sick doesn't have to come to class and get everybody else sick. Um, That's better for everybody. Mm -hmm. Um, But providing those options in every single way. So not just things like physical disabilities, um, but um, providing options for uh, the student who um, maybe doesn't need to have um, an audio track of the reading, but because it's provided, can use it while they are um, unloading packages at their second job after school or something like that. Um, or um, I've had young students um, who are new mothers. I've had this on multiple occasions where they were able to put in earbuds um, and listen to a lecture uh, while they're putting a child to sleep or holding yeah. a child you know, mm-hmm. afterwards. And as a mother of three... <laughs> Yeah, I know how difficult yep. it is when you're trying to tiptoe out of the room and one one creak and you've lost another hour of your time. Yeah, but um, so things like that 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 provide options for everybody. Um, so if you have a job outside of class, right? Um, even if you have uh, maybe your uh, your executive functioning. Um, which is like how you organize tasks, how you can kind of follow a long set of, uh, of uh, procedures or list. Maybe you need more help with that. Um, and so if I have 
a list of the 10 steps for this assignment and make it as transparent as possible, then I'm gonna help those students. Um, one student may only need to hear it once and they get it from me in class when I speak it, but there might be 25 other students who need to have it written down, who need to refer back to it. Um, and am I doing a disservice to the one student who got it on the first try? Um, if I provide it for the 25 other students who didn't on the first try. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that's part of those fake barriers that we put up like, oh, if you don't know how to do this already, then you should fail. And that has happened in our system. Like you need to know how to do this annotated bibliography, even though you've never done it before, go figure it out. Mm -hmm. um, but universal design for learning would put in my head the lens that, well, not everybody went to a high school that taught that. Not everybody went, grew up in America where this was a thing where they were supposed to learn. Mm -hmm. Not everybody has that background because their parents never went to college. Um, they don't even know what those terms mean. So I might need to define my terms. I might need to explain what each uh, step of the process is so that everybody has equal footing. Now, have I dumbed down the assignment? No. I haven't, I've just made it easily understandable to a wide variety of people. And that's what UDL is. It hasn't dumbed down what has to be done, but it does take into account that there are multiple different uh, kinds of learners in your mm -hmm. situation um, and they all deserve a shot at being successful. So um, you might have students who um, have been through um, uh, trauma. So being, uh, I think UDL also helps with trauma-informed uh, teaching by giving some flexibility um, and options uh, to choose those um, ways that will be most successful for that student. So topics that they might want to choose or mm -hmm. avoid. Um, and that's still like, if there's a topic that we need to discuss, we will discuss it. But there's also times when options are appropriate for uh, for students. So I think we all have, we don't realize this, but we all have accessibility needs. It just may be situational and yeah. um, maybe temporary. Um, but um, the, the idea of having um, all of those options for all of our students because we are all different um, is why UDL I think is so successful for our students. Yeah, yeah. And mm -hmm. I, you know, I always go back to the example of the curbs, the mm -hmm. curbs on the corner right. that, you know, it used to be that every curb had, uh, every corner had a curb that you had to step yeah. down from. And yeah. with the Americans with Disabilities Act, they changed those so that now they're, you know, they're graded. And who doesn't love those now? You right. don't have to worry about tripping when you get to the corner. Yeah. And if you have a suitcase or you have a stroller, you know, now it's, you can actually get, you know, across the street rather than clumping over right. those curves right. at the corner. Yeah. You know, and I'm thinking about that because later today I'm hosting an event for our vital faculty, which is visiting and instructors and temporary adjuncts and lectures. First time we're getting together. And usually I go up to campus, I park in my parking spot and I walk across campus, but today I'm going to have gobs of food right? Yeah. <laughs> How am I going to get that from my usual place to park? And, you know, I'll, I'm going to need to go to a kind of a special designated area with a ramp and go on up. Um, and that happens to our students a lot. It's just with um, um, not necessarily a physical 
accessibility issue, but how am I going to navigate this learning environment when I haven't uh, been in it before, when I haven't been um, familiarized with what is needed or wanted from me, where I don't know the hidden curriculum, mm -hmm. universal design for learning makes those things known, saying not everybody is going to know this. So let me just lay it out very clearly for you. Um, so that there are students who, like me today, I have to spend a whole lot of extra mental energy about figuring out how I'm gonna get on campus with the extra stuff I'm bringing. Um, and for our students, they might be spending a whole lot of extra mental energy trying to figure out how I'm going to succeed in this class, not knowing where the accessibility points are or, or how I've ever been able to do this before in a different language than I'm used to or working with people I'm not familiar with. Um, and so laying out really clear structures, rules of engagement, um, how, if you're in a team, what role you're supposed to play, you know, laying all that out is just making it clearer and therefore easier, uh, more accessible to actually get the thinking work done. Like yeah, because the real stuff. Yeah, imagine like all that's taking up the mental space in your head. If it didn't, if it didn't have to be there, right. you could actually focus on content. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So yeah. let's let's get into some like specific examples um, and specifically the you know, we there's the three components of UDL providing multiple means of engagement, representation and expression. So let's talk about engagement specifically. And um, within that, they give three guidelines in there about providing multiple means of recruiting interest. Mm -hmm. sustaining effort and self-regulation. So what would be some examples in like a traditional classroom or in distance ed? How would you address any of those three? Yes. Um, okay, great. Um, I love how uh, the Universal Design for Learning guidelines give us a, a really wide vision of what we need to look at, but they also give us specifics. Um, like, how, how am I going to start? Well, you can pick any one of these. So if we start with recruiting interest, and I'll go through each one, um, that um, includes giving choice and autonomy to our students. So I've talked about choices before, yep. but allowing um, so students to research. If they, if let's say we've got a research project, which I do in, in all of my classes, um, allowing for the student to decide what they want to research rather than, okay, everybody's going to study um, Akhenaten's tomb, which is pretty interesting, but not everybody <laughs> is, is interested in that, right? That they can find something that's authentic, uh, that's interesting uh, to them. So providing choices and saying, you know, what's interesting to you or how does this class overlap with um, something that is gonna help you later on um, or be of service to you. So that's a way to recruit that interest uh, is giving that choice, some authenticity um, and to, to make uh, it relevant to a student's life. Now that could be within a regular classroom uh, where you're seated and face-to-face, -face. that could also be online distance ed that, um, that they're able to uh, kind of use the whole of the internet to, to find out or, or your library's databases. That's what I'm asking my students to do uh, when we do the research project. So trying to find ways that are um, relevant, um, that work for our students. Um, and I'll do that in my intercultural dialogues class by um, having them kind of have a couple different um, 
assignments where they're thinking about a culture they want to know about. And then they kind of, what are some questions you have about that culture? And then, okay, come up with a research question. And now let's go and use these uh, really great resources and what peer reviewed journals look like, you know? Yeah. So we kind of step-by-step step, um, where they get to start with that. Here's what's interesting to me. And then I can lead them along with, um, yeah. you know, kind of the content of the course about, okay, well, we need some information literacy, but you're getting to do it on the thing that you are interested in. So let me give you a challenge here. Okay. What about um, a, like a K through 12 teacher who has a pretty lockstep curriculum that they have to follow mm -hmm. or like in a higher ed program where there are competencies, professional competencies, because they're going to take a board exam. How do you give students choice in that case? Yeah, great question. Um, I had a wonderful conversation with um, a professor in Qatar who has a really, um, Irene Theodoropoulou was her name, uh, one of our episodes, and she answered this question for me. So uh, I'm just going to take a little bit from what she taught me um, <laughs> in that uh, asking students to bring a bit of themselves into that topic. So mm -hmm. uh, this was a language class and they had to learn about specifics. Um, they had to learn um, colloquial phrases or things like that. And she would ask, well, do you have um, a colloquial phrase from your language, you know, that, you know, that would correlate to this. So having students bring in bits of themselves that make a connection. So they're still learning about whatever this thing is that we need to learn, mm -hmm. but saying, all right, well, what does that look like in your life? Um, mm -hmm. What, how, how would you make it um, a connection to the students and what they bring in? What does a celebration look like in your culture or um, what, um, what might that look like in your everyday life? Or have you seen this work out in your life? Yeah. Um, and so that was a way they could bring in themselves. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I know what you mean too about, hey, we have to cover this, 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 and this. And um, I do ask the questions about why is this useful, right? And yeah. there better be an answer. Yeah. <laughs> you gotta think why do we about have it. to learn because this? Well, why do we yes, have? you should have an answer for that. <laughs> yes. Um, and start with the why. Um, you know, maybe this doesn't seem like it's um, important to you to know six times six is 36, but you're going to be in a, um, a place where maybe you need to buy groceries for your family and you need to know how much money you have or or you will need to use this in um, something for your future. And so making that relevant, uh, making those connections because often our students don't see it and why would they? Uh, but we as the expert in the field are can see the long, kind of the long view into, into the future and see, hey, this is going to be relevant for you. You'll have to get these building blocks in order to be a successful, whatever, teacher, nurse, practitioner, um, doctor, uh, veterinarian, uh, statistician, whatever those things are, researcher. I also think in my courses, which are general education, I talk about how it's important to um, get good information so you can be an informed voter or citizen yeah. Yeah. Uh, or parent which preschool is going to be the best you know should i send my kid to preschool you know I, how do you um, make these decisions and so trying to make that connection for our students who probably they don't have enough information 
to understand the why. So bringing up that why part is, I think, the most important. Okay. So even if they can't necessarily get a choice of the content, mm -hmm. they could still make personal connections to it. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. And see why it's relevant yeah. um, to their lives, for sure. Um, and then the, the second part of the engagement is the sustaining effort and persistence, um, making sure those goals and objectives um, are important. So again, making that connection with the why um, and uh, fostering collaboration in community. Um, that is, I think, my favorite part, um, which is to have groups. Some people hate the group idea, right? <laughs> Students hate this idea of the group, but creating really um, helpful, um, interesting ways for students to interact. Now, if you're in a classroom, um, I uh, have been a part of, a, a, on our campus, the, a movement to make classrooms a lot more uh, communicative and um, so that you have pods of students. Mm -hmm. So I would have five tables and the students are working at tables. So every day I'm putting into whatever the materials are um, a place to stop and then, okay, talk with your table mates about, you know, find something from the chapter you read um, and come up with three things or something like that. And then they work in the, in the table groups. And that is so much more fun than let's say a quiz every time, right? Oh. Like, yeah. <laughs> or listening you, to you keep talking. Yes. Oh my goodness, exactly. Um, so being able to foster that collaboration and community and learning that, oh, you got that from the reading because I totally got this from the reading yeah. and yep. find out that, oh, I remembered this part, you remembered that part, let's put them together. Um, and they're helping each other learn. Um, so that engagement, I think is really, really helpful. So um, punctuating those, mini lectures with times for students to work together um, in an in-person classroom is has been wonderful. It saves my voice too, if I'm yeah. teaching three classes in a row. Um, and then I can say, okay, table one, what did you guys come up with? All right, table two, um, you know, I'll say table one, give me one of the three things you got, right? Mm -hmm. And the table two, how about one of the three things? And we might come up with five different things. I've got about 20 to 25 students. But if we're on, now I've switched over to online. And I've found a way to try to create that community by um, creating groups that can last throughout the semester, mm -hmm. uh, but then also having different options. So uh, I divide up the class um, where each week they've got one question where they're all on the same discussion board so you can hear what everybody has to say on this topic. And it's usually relating you know, to their own lives, right? What, how, how can you relate to this reading about, um, holidays, you know, what was it like for your grandparents or something like that? And they can share. And we learn a whole lot that way. And that, that helps us to get to our content. Um, but then I also separated into a half the class, a third of the class, a, a quarter and a fifth. So they get down into tiny groups of three. Um, and so um, they'll have a couple different mini assignments where then they're with the same three people or the same five people or the same eight people. Hmm. And yeah, that kind of ends up being the same uh, dynamic as when I could stop the lecture. Okay, you guys come up with something here where they're working with the same people because I used to do like totally random groups and then you have no idea who you're with if you're online. You don't know um, what's going on really. Um, and 
with this kind of long um, group format, uh, I found that they can kind of form some connections and 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 because we get into some more interesting and deep thought um, mm -hmm. ideas, uh, they need to have a little sense of familiarity as well. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that's a way to sustain that effort and persistence is you're, you're creating kind of a small, helpful group um, throughout the process. Yeah, and I've actually collected from faculty over the years different ways of forming groups that I, I use too. And like one uh, faculty member told me that she has students sign up by what type of worker are they? Mm -hmm. Do they want to get do they want to get started right away and get it all done? Yeah. Do they want to, you know, spread it out over the whole course of a week? Do they want to wait until the last day? Cause that's the only time they have to work on it. Yeah. And that like totally takes out so much of the angst yeah. that happens in group dynamics where students aren't meeting each other's expectations. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. So it's important. I mean, we have to also plan for that variability yeah. and say that people are going to approach it differently and, um, and try to work with those students and make that right. Make those differences, a leveraging point of, um, a positive for those groups. Yeah. Yep. So, well, and the last part about engagement on the UDL guidelines, that third area of the green column, which is the mm -hmm. far left column on those cast UDL guidelines. I'll make sure we've got that on the show yep. notes too, yep. um, is about self-regulation. Um, and that um, is a really interesting part of engagement. I think that reflection and saying that's an important part. Um, so the, the thing I've lately been working on is self-assessment and reflection. And so I have students, um, with every everything they do in the class, they actually have to go back and reflect on it. And so I use something called a reflection table. So I, I mark it all out and say, here's what's the assignment and then put up a screenshot of what you wrote in the discussion board or whatever. Or the I have them draw things sometimes or create things on the internet and I put that up there or write a poem. We do crazy stuff. Um, and then what you learned by doing it. So this is after the assignment. It's like, you know, I learned I'm not much of a poet or I learned yeah. um, that um, there were a whole many different ways to accomplish this assignment or something like that. And then I asked specifically, what did you learn um, from somebody else? Because uh, I have them yeah. post it somewhere and talk about it with each other. And it gives them time to think and reflect about their own learning and I do ask them to use words that include emotions, like I was excited or I was angry, I was very frustrated, mm -hmm. those sorts of things to connect that to their learning. Um, and so what, what they learned by doing it and then what they learned from somebody else um, and uh, then have a time to reflect on the learning because there's so many times, and I did this as a student, where you are just beating, trying to beat the deadline, you sort of vomit a bunch of words on a page. <laughs> and then you're like, I don't ever want to see that again. Just yeah, yep. <laughs> take it. Um, and this requires the students to go back and say, huh, here's what I was trying to get at, you yeah. know, or here's what I really did do, or here's what I was thinking. So that um, reflection part is where the learning happens. For me, mm -hmm. um, that is when we have time to reflect, 
that's when we actually have time to internalize and learn the concepts rather than spitting them out on a test or an oral report or whatever it is. When we go back and say, huh, that was interesting. I do it differently next time. Or um, I didn't think about this part the first time because I was, you know, trying to get it under, you know, before the deadline. Um, having them go back and self self assess too um, uh, has been really transformative for me, and that goes along also with the ungrading um, uh, momentum that's that's happening in in higher ed now about uh, mm-hmm. students thinking about their work and um, helping to understand what their grade should be as they say how much effort or persistence they put into the course. But I, I just think that's really, um, really important to have. And it doesn't take much time together. either. Mm-hmm. So if you're worried that you don't, you don't have time in your lessons to do this, yeah. it doesn't take much time. No. I mean, I'm asking just for a couple sentences, yeah. you know, two sentences, you know, yeah. Yeah. Um, but it does do, it does do a lot for them to go back and revisit. Um, I think is really important and that keeps them engaged in the learning. And also it's like, oh, that's why we did it. Oh yeah. Rather than throw this in, throw this in, throw this in and, and not have to think about it anymore. And I learned so much too. Like I mentioned yes. that last episode that I have students do a weekly exit ticket, uh, a reflection on their learning. And I learned so much from them and it has been it has been a major game changer for me. Like I yeah. actually feel connected to every single one of my students. That's great. Which yeah. even in a face-to-face class, you don't get that. There's always yeah. a couple of students that you just, you never connect with. Yeah. 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 And, and that means they're connected to you too. Yeah. And that's a major part of that engagement. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So if someone wanted to learn more about UDL and mm-hmm. start using this approach, this mindset in their teaching to improve learner engagement, how would you recommend that they get started? Well, I recommend you don't reinvent the wheel. There are lots <laughs> of people who are already doing this and chances are there are some really um, easily adaptable ideas uh, for somebody to uh, to use. So I recommend um, just seeing what's out there. Like listen to a podcast. Um, mm-hmm. There's a, there's 75 out now, the Think UDL podcast, <laughs> and you can, uh, you know, see if you want to look at assessments or representation or engagement or things like that. Um, there's probably something that you can glean right really easily um, from other people's work. Um, and um, I'd say also the collegestar.org website has instructional guides about how to implement universal design for learning. They have case studies. Um, they have lots of uh, ways to make your, um, your class more interesting, more engaging. Um, one of my first interviews was with Martha McCoy who had done that for um, making um, her sociology class uh, both silly and serious. That was you know, really interesting, <laughs> engaging ways. Um, to do things. So um, there's a lot out there um, for UDL podcasts. Um, there's UDL in 15 minutes if people are interested in, in K-12 um, and uh, your learner engagement. Um, there's um, also lots of information. Um, Reach Everyone, Teach Everyone by Tom Tobin and Kirsten Beeling is a great book um, mm-hmm. that helps out. Um, so there's um, there's a lot that you could do, but you can just start small. Just try one assignment, try one yeah. class day, um, try an intervent, a UDL intervention in one thing. Um, and then, you know, the next time you teach it, 
try another one, right? And uh, I've been doing this for more than five years and it's just completely transformed the way I teach. However, it's been a very slow process, you know, of how I used to do things and, and now that I keep adding more and more things. And does it work every time? No, sometimes <laughs> it's like, you know, like everything could be a massive failure, but when we reflect on that failure, realize uh, I can, I can um, provide, and a lot of times I need to provide more choices. I will tell you a, of a, a failure in which I thought this would be really fun. I split up everybody into groups. This is in a classroom. And I had students um, really looking at the differences between two of the main players in the book we were reading. And um, I said, can you set this to the Brady Bunch theme song? You know, <laughs> here's the story of a lovely lady. You know, so you have this one person um, who was very organized and a crack scholar and another person who had really great real world experience, great with the men and the army, whatever. I was like, this is perfect. And guess how many of my students knew the Brady Bunch theme? Oh, yeah, none. Yeah, a, a big whopping zero. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay, I wasn't planning for that. I was like, this is gonna be so fun. Oh, this yeah. is so neat. <laughs> I'm so smart for thinking of this. And so then I just, the little change I had to make was choose any song you have. Yes. Yep. Anything you want. I've had raps, I've had the Scooby-Doo theme song, SpongeBob SquarePants. Oh, you know, they just, to make it fun. It was trying to be a, a kind of a fun way to note the differences. They still had to have the content. Yeah. Um, and um, so, you know, the next time around, I figured it out, um, <laughs> but, uh, and it's, and it's been great. I still remember a lot of what the students, you know, had done to come up with it. They had a class time to come up with a short, you know, minute long presentation. Uh, yeah. But, you know, I started out with not enough choices. So <laughs> that was my own fault there. So you live and learn. Yeah. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. yeah. And, and you I, have to be able to not take yourself so seriously. Yes. And I must say, it's easier for me to do that now than it was at the very beginning of my teaching career, because you're, yeah. you're a lot more scared back then. So yeah. <laughs> you know, in time, it works. Yeah. Uh, now I have three questions that we all ask all of our guests. So okay. first, what is a major barrier to learner engagement that you have experienced? Um, I found upon reflection that um, the biggest barrier for me was um, the social aspect um, of, of learning. So in high school, I absolutely adored and had a wonderful relationship with my calculus math teacher. Um, and I therefore loved math and thought I would go into college as a math major. Yeah. And then uh, in high school, I had um, a difficult experience with a history teacher. Um, and I had some wonderful history teachers too, uh, who are still wonderful friends. Um, but I had a difficult experience and it made me not like history, like for the longest time. Yep. And therefore I did not major in history. I, I started to major in math and then that did not work well. I realized I wasn't a math lover. I just really liked this you know, educational experience I had. And then yeah. math itself, not so much. Um, and, but I took three math courses in college. It was, you know, there were no more numbers in the classes I was taking. I was like, this isn't math, it's philosophy. <laughs> this isn't math anymore. Um, and, and so it was that, it was that personal experience that I, uh, the, the class was sort of run kind of like a military um, experience where everybody was called by their last name. 
you know, (laughs) and if you were late, you were made to run laps around the, it was very old school, right? You you had to run a lap around the football field. Uh, If you're chewing gum, you had to go out and run a lap around the football field. And it was just, um, it really turned me off about and and made me disengage where I did not want to um, do well in the class because often I'd want to do well in a class because I liked the teacher or the professor. And so it, Mm -hmm. it, it really, uh, encouraged me to do well, to perform well. And I'm not saying those are the best, you know, reasons to learn, but it, it's what happened with me. And so if there, if I thought that the person didn't care about me, um, or care about, um, the class, uh, it was a major barrier for me yeah. to engage. And so I barely remember anything um, from that experience and it turned me off of history and then lo and behold I become an art historian but it took a lot <laughs> I'm glad of glad you found of, the passion eventually yes, yes. Yeah. yeah yeah so that that was uh, so personality wise I think you can set up a situation or an environment that puts unneeded barriers and it really can turn off your students to to wanting to learn the actual information because of all those other things. Let your students know you care. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Because I felt like that, that was like the only one where I was like, oh, this is, I don't feel like they care. Yeah. (laughs) So my next question is about the future. What should we start thinking about or exploring in our discussions on learner engagement that is not fully being addressed yet? Um, I've thought of two things for this question. One is um, the online space. So for distance education, um, that um, I think there are still more ways that we should be able to communicate and engage uh, and collaborate. Um, that isn't just trying to mimic what we had in the in-person space. Yeah. So wonderful things like, like VoiceThread, where you can include, and Flipgrid, where you can include videos and you get to see people's faces or you can annotate the screen. Mm -hmm. Um, I think there's still a lot of space in that area that we can explore to make that collaboration and community um, more of a thing. You know, I know that I have teenage boys and the amount of community they have online, like through games, Yep. Right. And, and through um, sports, whatever, sports games, those sorts of things online. Um, that's a real, those are real relationships. And mm-hmm. those are really important during COVID. Um, I was lucky that my, my children were older than elementary school during that because they had already built friendships yeah. with their peers online and could continue that so that they're kind of the devastation and isolation of COVID. Um, and go, you know, being home from school and not going, it was, it affected them less. So because they had these engagements, these uh, friendships, that's important. So I think we can, there's more to go. There's more that we can explore to have an engaging online space um, in the ed tech world and in ways of how we group our students, right? How they work together. And so it's not just a Google form. Um, that they're, you know, creating websites or other things. So I think that still has a lot of room in the future, how to engage online spaces. Um, and the other thing that I think we need to be thinking about is um, how 
uh, grading is a deterrent for engagement um, because um, if students are worried about the grade they're going to get, then they might cut corners. We know cheating, plagiarism. That means that the grade is more important than the learning if they're willing to do that. Yeah. So um, sometimes, I and many times, grades can be a deterrent to actually going deep into the field, the learning, the, um, the environment because they don't wanna mess up whatever the grade can be, or they just wanna do the minimum. Yeah. It's, it's, I think it's at odds um, a lot with that um, engagement, that pure kind of learning that we hope or aspire to be. Um, and so I, I think there's, there's a lot more that's going to come from that, um, mm -hmm. that you would think that grades would be this big carrot that keeps your students engaged. And for some it is, for me it was, but I also realized that I missed out on um, really interesting things because I was only after a grade in some, yeah. in some senses. So yeah. I was sort of, I was on the wrong path or, or mistook the path at some points because of this other carrot um, that was ahead of me where I could have found a whole chicken pot pie of, yeah. of wonderfulness <laughs> if I took another path instead of just the metaphor. carrot. <laughs> it had peas and chicken. Yeah, and wow. So ungrading is really the, the chicken pot pie of, yes, yeah. of engagement. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Hashtag. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so as we wrap up, my final question is, what is the one thing you want people to remember from this conversation about learner engagement? Uh, Right. I hope that people remember that universal design for learning is um, the thing that can give you the tools and the mindset to engage your learners in whatever space it is. If it's online, in-person, K-12, higher ed, workforce development, you're training people at a new job. Um, if you put that lens on about how different our learners are and how important it, that is and how that's a good quality, that it's a strength, um, then I think all of our learners and we as instructors will be better for it. And UDL provides those tools, um, kind of the different corners to look for, uh, to change and uh, create interventions in your teaching practice, um, that UDL has it. Wow, UDL is the answer. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Well, Lillian Nave, thank you so much for joining us today. I really enjoyed our conversation. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm really glad you're doing this. There's um, you know, always room for more um, about how to engage our learners. There's just so much we can learn. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. Learner Engagement Activated is produced by the Learner Engagement Division of the Association for Educational Communications and Technology. This episode was hosted by Ian Fency with sound editing and production by Ian Fency. The music is from Purple Planet. Visit the Learner Engagement Division online at www.learnerengagement.org and find out more about the Association for Educational Communications and Technology at aect.org.